0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activities landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's PRI-MED.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you,
1: and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Prime Ed's podcast on severe hypoglycemia. We welcome Dr. Diana Isaacs, an endocrine clinical pharmacy specialist and CGM program coordinator at the Cleveland Clinic Diabetes Center in Cleveland, Ohio. She has been on the Speakers Bureau of Dexcom Incorporated, LifeScan, Novo Nordisk Incorporated, and Xeris Pharmaceuticals Incorporated in the past 12 months. The learning objectives of this podcast are 1. Compare and contrast current available pharmacologic options for the treatment of severe hypoglycemia, and 2. Facilitate shared decision-making, SDM, for diabetes patients and parents and caregivers regarding the selection of therapies for the treatment of severe hypoglycemia. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Zaris Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Isaacs.
2: Hi, it's great to be here today.
1: We'd like to begin with our first question. What would you consider to be a hypoglycemic emergency? And what are some of the signs and symptoms?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's a good idea to just review general hypoglycemia, which can be split into three levels, level one through three. Level one is considered a glucose that's below 70, but over 54. And at this point, typical symptoms generally include things like shaking, sweating, hunger, a rapid heartbeat, Now, level two hypoglycemia is when glucose goes below 54. At this point, the symptoms include things like behavioral changes, where a person is acting differently, uh, confusion, blurred vision, even seizure and loss of consciousness. And it may be difficult for a person to even realize that they're experiencing hypoglycemia. Level three is considered to be severe hypoglycemia. And at this level it's actually not defined by a specific number although as you might imagine it's more likely that glucose would be in the level 2 range under 54 at this point there's altered mental status and the definition is that it requires assistance from another person so a person is not able to treat the hypoglycemia by themselves so it is this level 3 that is considered to be a hypoglycemia emergency and Again, just emphasizing that a person is not able to treat themselves and needs the help of someone else, otherwise they are not going to be able to resolve that hypoglycemia.
1: What types of patients are at the highest risk for a hypoglycemic emergency?
2: Any person that's taking a medication that can cause hypoglycemia could be at risk. So most commonly, we think of insulin. We know that insulin can cause hypoglycemia. And then there's a couple other medication classes, including sulfonylureas, which are drugs like glipizide, glimepiride, gliburide, and then also less commonly used meglitinides, which includes niteglanide and repeglanide. So all these drugs, through their mechanism of action, can cause hypoglycemia. And then even though the other diabetes classes aren't expected to cause hypoglycemia when used alone, anytime you add those classes to insulin sulfonylureas or glitinides, a person can be at risk of hypoglycemia occurring. So this is going to happen, this risk can occur in anyone with type 1 diabetes because we know that they require multiple daily injections of insulin or insulin pump therapy and then it also can occur in people with type 2 diabetes especially the ones that are taking multiple daily injections are at the greatest risk and because you know 90 to 95% of cases are actually people with type 2 diabetes even though hypoglycemia overall may be more common in people with type 1 we're actually seeing a lot of people with type 2 diabetes that could be potentially experiencing the severe hypoglycemia or hypoglycemic emergencies now, there's certain factors, in addition to just the medications, that also can increase a person's risk. This includes things like erratic schedule, where there's not so much consistency with meal times, with sleep schedule. Also, things like stress. Stress can definitely lead to um, erratic glucose readings, which can contribute to hypoglycemic emergencies other things like alcohol use um, poor cognitive status and then renal disease have also been implicated and a note that i would just like to say is that you know in patients who are at increased risk for hypoglycemia it's really important to consider having the patient wear a medic alert bracelet or using a continuous glucose monitor or cgm to be able to identify those declining blood glucose levels early on and hopefully reduce that risk of developing hypoglycemia
1: What options are currently available for the treatment of severe hypoglycemia, and what are their differences?
2: Fortunately, now we have newer options of glucagon, which make glucagon administration a whole lot easier. And really, the number one thing that you're going to want to use for a severe hypoglycemic episode where a person's not able to eat or drink is going to be glucagon. So we have three formulations now. There is a nasal, there's a pre-mixed stable liquid, and then there's also a lyophilized glucagon powder injection. Now some of the differences with these include the nasal is obviously it's administered in the nose. Uh, the stable liquid is a ready to use formulation. It is currently available as a pre-filled syringe. And it's expected in July 2020 to also have an auto-inject option. Now, the glucagon powder requires reconstitution before use. So it is a bit more cumbersome to use. And this is the product that we've had you know, for decades. Um, and so it comes as a vial with a powder, and then it comes with a syringe that has liquid in it. And you need to take that liquid and put it into the vial and then you need to mix it, so you're reconstituting it, and then the person needs to actually draw it out with that syringe and then get ready to inject the person uh, with with the product. So as you can imagine, for people that are not trained, healthcare professionals, or even those that are trained, um, this can be quite a cumbersome process to do during an emergency situation. So fortunately now the nasal glucagon is very simple to administer. It is delivered in the nose and it is, you know, it's a button pressed into the nose and the auto the the prefilled syringe is also it's ready to make. It's you take off the cap and you inject it. So it's a much simpler process compared to what we've had for so long. Now, there's some other differences between the products that are useful to know, and so one is the age approved indications. So the nasal glucagon is approved for ages four and over. The liquid stable glucagon is approved for ages two and over, and then the glucagon powder is actually approved for any age. Some other differences to note are the site of administration, right? So the nasal is obviously going to be administered in the nose. pre-filled liquid it can actually it's delivered subcutaneously and the sites are really the same sites where a person could administer insulin. So the lower abdomen, the outer thigh, or the outer upper arm. And this is different from the glucagon powder, which can be administered subcutaneously, uh, intramuscular, or um, I, even IV. And this goes, it's actually a bigger needle, and it goes in, can go in the upper arms, the thighs, or the buttocks. So not the abdomen in that case. Other key differences, the dose itself, the nasal is actually a higher dose. It's a three milligram and there's no difference for pediatrics versus adults, it is just one dose. The um, liquid stable glucagon comes in a 0.5 or a one milligram and so if a person is both under 12 and under 45 kilograms, they're gonna use that lower 0.5 milligram dose versus if the person is either over 12 or over 45 kilograms, they're gonna use that larger dose. And the glucagon powder is similar in that it also has a 0.5 or a one milligram dose, and you're gonna use different doses depending on the weight and the age of the person. There are slight differences in the kinetics, um, very, very slight differences in things like half-life and absorption, but really for all intents and purposes, they're all similar in that they're expected to work within 15 minutes. And if they don't work in 15 minutes, it is always an option to give a second injection. One key thing to think about though is with that glucagon powder, it takes a lot of prep time, right? Depending how you know, efficient you are, you know, it could take a person two or three minutes. Um, and then there, there tends to be more errors with administration with that product. So that's something to keep in mind um, that that would obviously add to additional time if you're doing that. And then another thing is just the adverse effect profile. So glucagon, very similar between formulations, we do expect some level of nausea, which could potentially lead to vomiting. With the injectable forms, it's possible to have you know redness or an injection site reaction. And then with the nasal form, the big difference is there, there could be um, potentially some upper respiratory infection or uh, nasal discomfort could occur.
1: When deciding on what treatment option to provide to the patient and or caregiver, what are some considerations?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. So, I think, you know, some of the just looking at some of the differences between products, you know, if what the person's preference is on route of administration, if they would prefer something in their nose versus something that is injectable. And this will be very patient specific because, you know, many people are used to injectable medications, you know, using insulin so that could be a preference but then you know depending on what the caregiver's preference is because usually it's not going to be the person administering it to themselves usually it's going to be some type of caregiver friend acquaintance family member and so what what is their comfort with do they comfortable with an injectable or do they prefer a nasal type of formulation and then I think, you know, the age of the patient is obviously gonna be a consideration because when we look at the FDA approved ages, you know, knowing that the nasal is four and over and that the liquid stable is two and over um, versus the you know powder is all ages, that can be a consideration as well. And then of course, you know, cost and what's covered on formulary, you know, it definitely can be a consideration. Fortunately, um, most you know insurance plans are really expanding coverage to include the newer formulations. So hopefully that will be less of an issue for people moving forward. And there's also copay cards as well that can reduce the prices for people with commercial insurance.
1: Since patients and caregivers are the ones typically administering the therapy for persons with severe hypoglycemia, how do you include them in the decision process for treatment selection?
2: This is a great question. So first, I describe the symptoms of hypoglycemia. And I want them to understand you know, why it's important to be able to recognize these symptoms. And I should really preface that with I ask first, have you ever experienced a low blood sugar? And how did you feel? And try to build off of what the person has already experienced now next i like to describe all the different options um, and i like to go through each kind of like how we just discussed you know how there's different dosing um how there can be different routes of administration and how it's administered uh the different locations it can be administered as well as the age indications and all of those type of information And if possible, I think it's really helpful to be able to show them demos of each and let them practice using. So I'm very fortunate, you know, in my office setting, I do have demos of each different type. I can show it to them, they can get practice handling it and see what it would be like, and ideally they would have someone with them who might be the person that ends up using it. Now we've been doing more telehealth lately, and you know, even through the video I can at least still show people what the demo looks like and actually, you know, alert them to send them to certain patient materials so that they can learn more for themselves and make an educated choice about what, you know, which type of product they would like to use the most. And I would say it's really through this shared decision making um, together where the person can make an informed decision by having all that information. And really through shared decision making, I think it's important that we don't make a specific recommendation. I don't say, well, I recommend this because of this, this, and this. No, I present the information and then let that person with diabetes make that decision.
1: Can you provide an example of a discussion you might have with patients and caregivers regarding the selection of therapies for the treatment of severe hypoglycemia?
2: This is a great question. I'd like to share a recent patient story that I have. So this is a person with type 2 diabetes, um, and she takes multiple daily injections of insulin. And she also is using a CGM. So recently, she had a really bad reaction um, a couple months ago where she accidentally doubled up on her mealtime insulin dose. So she had she was supposed to take 15 units, and she didn't remember that she had already given herself 15 units, and she ended up giving 30 units. So when she looked at her CGM device, it read 100, but it had these arrows going down. So she knew that she needed to eat more to counteract you know, a severe hypoglycemic episode. So she did that, she tried to eat more, but it was really difficult for her to be able to eat enough um, to meet that need. And unfortunately, you know, as glucose starts to go lower, it can be more difficult for a person to think clearly. And she ended up passing out, she ended up having a seizure, and she did not have glucagon at home. And her spouse found her, he called 911. She was taken to the hospital and she was admitted. Um, so as you can imagine, I mean, this is just, this story breaks heart, I mean, it breaks my heart, um, that this could have been prevented with glucagon at home and just even to be, you know, had to have to go to the hospital during these times of COVID-19, you know, when we're trying to avoid the hospital. So, you know, when the, when she came into my office, um, after this event occurred, we you know we had a long discussion um and i we talked about glucagon and how you know if this were ever to happen again how glucagon could save her life in a situation like this so what I did was I described the different glucagon options. You know, she had heard of glucagon, but no one ever really no one had prescribed it for her before. Um, and so we talked about how there's different products. There's a nasal product, there's injectable, there's, you know, the liquid stable glucagon formulation, there's a powdered form that requires reconstitution. And you know we talked about how um, you know some of the advantages of the liquid stable glucagon is that it is easy to administer. Um, there are multiple site options, so you know it can be administered in the abdomen, the upper arm, or the outer thigh. Um, one of the things about this formulation is that a person can see the dose going into the patient. So um, this is this can be different. Like for example, with the nasal glucagon, um, that's administered in the nose. The powder goes in, but you don't necessarily see it. You assume by clicking it's gone in. But with the prefilled syringe, you actually you see the dose. You know you see the liquid going into the person. So that sometimes offers some additional confidence. Um, But we also, of course, talk about disadvantages of each device. So, you know, of course, with a injectable, there's a potential for a needle stick injury um, and injection site reactions. And, you know, the nasal could have certain advantages. It is very easy to administer. Um, it's actually demonstrated effectiveness even in people that have nasal congestion. So the person does not need to breathe in or anything for it to work. And there's of course no, you know, fear of needle stick in injuries. Um, but you know, some of disadvantages of the nasal glucagon could include the additional side effects of nasal discomfort and upper respiratory infection. So, and then the nasal can be administered to patients that are unconscious. um, So, it doesn't require a person to breathe in to get the dose. But I think it is helpful to know that, you know, in a situation like this patient experienced, it is possible to give the glucagon before the person passes out. And then, in that case, the person may, you know, would feel what that glucagon felt like, would inhale it. And so, that's something to kind of keep in mind. and I would ask her, you know, what does she think those close to her would prefer to administer? So, you know, what does what would her spouse prefer? Ideally, you know, her spouse was um, with her when we discussed this, and ideally, you would have the spouse with the person, and you could discuss together. Well, you know, what what do you prefer? And um, we also discussed some very important counseling points just related to glucagon, which I think are very important to go over. So one of those is that after glucagon is administered, um, the person should be rolled onto their side, just because there is that increase of nausea and potentially vomiting, and so you don't want a person to choke on that. If the person's not alert in 15 minutes, a second dose can be given. Um, I always make sure that my patients have two doses on hand, so in this case, I made sure uh, two were sent to the pharmacy with refills. And the last thing, which I think is very important, is that you know if glucagon is used, I want her to call the office um, so that we can review what happened with the goal of trying to prevent the emergency hypoglycemic event in the future. So in this case, you know, there's a lot of options. You know, there's smart pens and there's options to uh, make it easier to remember that a dose was given. Because we don't ideally we want to try to prevent hypoglycemia, but we understand that we can't possibly prevent every single event. And that's why having glucagon on hand is so essential. And um, I won't tell you which one, I'll keep you in suspense. I won't tell you which one she picked, but what I will tell you is that I'm a big believer in shared decision-making. And even if a person picks one product, there's nothing to say that next time they couldn't pick the different product and try it again. So um, with that, I wanna thank you so much for having me here today and I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you for your time today, Dr. Isaacs. To obtain your CME credit, Please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.
0: We thank you again for joining Primed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.